Did you know a 2018 study showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual. When I was four months pregnant, I couldn't find a prenatal I could trust, so I created my own. Ours is made traceable, third-party tested for heavy metals, and recently earned the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. But don't just take my word for it. Get 25% off at ritual.com slash prenatal. From the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse, among the yeoman-tilled farmland of Grantham, Pennsylvania, this is the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast, a bi-weekly discussion dedicated to American history, historical thinking, and the role of history in our everyday lives. And now, here's your host, author, and award-winning historian, John Fia. Welcome, everyone, to Episode 10 of the Wave Improvement Leads Home Podcast. We are so glad that you've joined us. And welcome to the first show of our second season. As always, I'm with my partner in crime and the producer of the podcast, Drew Durley Hermeling. Drew, we made it to season two. Well, I have to say I wasn't always sure that we'd get here, but now that we are, I am very excited to see what's next. So we're just starting the new academic year. How was your summer? I have to say it was pretty exciting. I did a lot of traveling with my family. Went out to St. Louis to see my family, caught a cards game over at Bush Stadium, did some mild home improvement, so you could say my way of improvement led to drywall. Um, tried to keep up with my reading for my PhD studies with moderate success. This semester I'm teaching a new class, first year seminar here at Messiah, so I had a lot of preparing to do on that front. However, more than anything, I'm chasing my now crawling baby around the house trying to keep her out of trouble. So that's probably responsibility number one for me. And some of you may have seen with uh, the blog the picture, maybe I Facebooked or tweeted it, a picture of Nilsa, our, the fourth member of our yes. team. And speaking of four members of our team, this season we have a new member of the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast team. We want to give a warm welcome to our new studio producer, Michaela Mummert. Michaela's here with us, of course, right now. Tell us a little bit about yourself, Michaela. Hey, everyone. I'm Michaela. I am a junior at Messiah College. I am a broadcast and media production major, so, and I have a marketing minor as well, so I'm just trying to get a little bit, you know, here, a little bit of there kind of thing going on. I'm from Dover, Pennsylvania, so like the York area, and I want to have a future in radio, so podcasting is definitely something that is growing, especially with radio people. You can get your start from podcasts and really, you know, have people listen to your podcasts and see the quality and stuff like that. And that can lead to a lot of other jobs and that kind of thing. So just getting a lot of background in podcasting was something that I was really interested in. So I was approached to do this and I thought it was a great idea. So I'm all down for it. We, I can't tell you how excited we are to have Michaela on board. <laughs> uh, in addition to keeping us all in line here in the studio, Michaela's going to be helping us out with our sound quality. You may hear her voice every now and then. I actually taught Michaela in a course on Pennsylvania history a couple of years ago, and that's how we first met. But uh, we're really excited to have her as part of the Way of Improvement Leads Home team here. So welcome again, Michaela. And we are glad as well to have you back, our faithful listeners. Please help us keep this podcast going by sharing it with your friends. Please consider downloading, subscribing, and especially reviewing the podcast at iTunes. 
And we're also developing a more concrete way for you to support our efforts here. So stay tuned in future episodes for more details on that. Well, So how about you, John? What did you do this summer? Well, I spent most of my summer, to be honest with you, lamenting the end of my year-long sabbatical from teaching and chairing the history department here at Messiah College. It was, I tell you, it was great to have the year off. I did some work on some research and writing projects. But, you know, it, I've now been back in the classroom for a couple of weeks now, and I must admit I miss, I miss being with the students and teaching again. I cannot say that I really miss all the stuff that comes with being a department chair, way too much paperwork, too many meetings. But what did I do this summer? I think that was your original question. Uh, my family and I, we took a vacation to Maine. As I've been doing that over the past three years, I taught a great group of history teachers who came uh, to the Gilder Lehrman Institute for American History's Princeton seminar that I teach on colonial America. And I just continued with the normal stuff, writing, blogging, speaking. We also got my daughter ready for her freshman year of college as well. Well, my daughter's crawling and yours is heading off to college. How's that going? Uh, don't get me started, Drew. Uh, she's my oldest. She left. You know, she, We won't see her again until November. She's out in Michigan uh, at college, about nine hours away. Check out the blog. I've done a little writing on this front, and I, I'm not sure I could speak more about this without getting too overly emotional, if you know what I mean. <laughs> so, Drew, tell us. Uh, get me off the hook here and tell us a little bit about today's episode. Well, today we're going to take a look at historical reenacting and impersonation. And I have to say, something our listeners may not know about me, I'm an avid reader of comic books. And so with that in mind, I think in many ways we are tackling my origin story today, not just as a historian, but just as a person generally. In fact, today's guest is Steve Edenbow, who not only is a professional Thomas Jefferson impersonator, but was also my middle school babysitter when he was a student at Dickinson College, where my mom was working as a dean at the time. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to talking with Steve here in a few minutes. I mentioned that this summer we took some teachers uh, to Philadelphia as part of this Princeton seminar that I was teaching, and many of them chatted with Steve at the time. I had no idea at the time that he would be our first guest here in season two. He was there with a John Adams impersonator at Independence Hall, and a lot of our, especially our elementary school teachers, were very excited to, to interact with him. So this should be a fun interview. Well, yeah, and, and beyond counting Steve as a close friend and an important part of my personal upbringing, I have a thing or two to say about the role of reenacting within our culture's historical understanding as well. Not long after getting to know Steve, my family and I became heavily involved in 18th century living history. And I would have to say it is what initially ignited my passion for early American history, which is now the subject to which I've dedicated my life. It instilled in me an acute sense of wonder for everything about living in the 18th century, the goods that made 18th century life possible, the exchanges between cultures that define the time. I mean, I, I even grew to love the penetrating smell of wood fires and wet wool. But I have also had to confront some significant problems with the way reenacting influences the way we as Americans encounter the past. For example, it is rife with the insistence that we get the past right. But the more I study, the more I realize that right is subjective. Perhaps the most telling example is a distinct memory I have of one of the older guys in my group handing me a copy of Francis Parkman's The Conspiracy of Pontiac and telling me that this is all you need. This one gets it right. Well, ironically, much of my life's work is now spent demonstrating all the ways Parkman has clouded our understanding of 18th century Indians in North America. So, that being said, I know you have some thoughts on reenacting as well, John. So, with that in mind, here is today's story. 
As many of our listeners know, back in 2008, I published a biography of an 18th century writer, diarist, cultural observer, and Presbyterian minister named Philip Vickers Fithian. Between 1773 and 1774, after he graduated from the College of New Jersey at Princeton, Fithian served as a tutor for the children of Robert Carter III on his Northern Neck, Virginia plantation called Nominee Hall. The diary he kept during his year in the Old Dominion is probably the best account available on the everyday life of a Revolutionary-era plantation. As I worked on the book and gave dozens of talks on Fithian, I heard all kinds of stories from people who had read the diary and wanted to know more about its author. I met living history interpreters who used the diary to help them perform their roles. Members of the Fithian family contacted me with genealogy requests. One elementary teacher who came to Princeton to take my summer seminar on colonial America took some of her free time to head over to the Firestone Library to see the journal for herself. And then someone informed me that Fithian was being portrayed by an actor at Colonial Williamsburg. This news prompted me to action. The summer after The Way of Improvement Leads Home appeared, I took my family on a vacation to this mecca of colonial America. I told my daughters, they were 11 and 7 at the time, that we were going to try to find and meet Philip Vickers Fithian. I had been talking about this guy for as long as they could remember, but I think it was the hunt that got them excited about the proposed exercise. When we arrived at Williamsburg, I told everyone to keep their eyes open for Fithian. We wandered the park for several hours, but there was no sign of him anywhere. Finally, we ran into Robert Carter III. Certainly, Carter would know the whereabouts of his tutor, Philip Vickers Fithian. I was unsure how to approach Carter as he stood on the street chatting with visitors. My girls and wife were eager to see how this encounter would go down. Are you Robert Carter III? I asked. Why, yes, I am. And what is your name, son? I am John Fia. I wrote a book about Philip Vickers Fithian, your children's tutor. Ah, yes, Carter replied. Mr. Fithian is a fine man. I have appreciated the services he has rendered to me and my children. It was at this point of the conversation that I hoped the actor playing Carter would break from character. He did not. I couldn't even get a straight answer from him about whether or not Fithian was present in Williamsburg on that day. My daughters were baffled. Why wouldn't this guy acknowledge that their dad had written a book about Fithian? After about 10 more minutes of small talk, we wandered away, excited to have met Fithian's boss, but disappointed that he did not help us find the elusive Fithian. As our long day in Williamsburg came to an end, my wife and daughters decided to do some souvenir shopping in the gift store. I set out to see if I could find Carter again. As I walked by the Carter house in Williamsburg, there he was, sitting on a rocking chair on his front porch. We made eye contact, and he called me over. Tell me more about your book on Fithian, he asked. Well, it just came out, and it is basically a biography of his life set in the larger context of revolutionary America, I said. He was clearly out of character now, and we chatted about Fithian for a good 30 minutes. 
He informed me that Fithian was being interpreted at Williamsburg, but only as part of the park's Christmas programming. He encouraged me to return a few months later and perhaps we might get to, quote unquote, meet him. I have a lot of respect for reenactors like the guy playing Robert Carter. These living history interpreters are often very well read on the person who they are playing and are sometimes even familiar with scholarly literature on their subjects. Places such as Colonial Williamsburg and Plymouth Plantation do a wonderful job of educating Americans about the past. When done right, historical reenacting plays an important part in the work of public history. But reenacting can also result in a kind of escapism that presents the past as stagnant and irrelevant, similar to some of the things Drew has just mentioned. History is always a dialogue between the past and present, and it is easy for reenactors to ignore these connections. This is especially the case with war reenactors. Many of these reenactors believe doing history is directly related to the authenticity of their uniforms or whether or not the movement of their regiment conforms to the way its members moved during Pickett's charge on the third day of the Battle of Gettysburg. Those involved in these sessions are less concerned with history than they are with antiquarianism. Battles should breed reflections on human identity, death, war, and suffering. History is about context, change over time, complex human relationships, and causality. How does one reflect on these things when their primary goal is to have authentic uniforms, guns, and rifles? Here's a thought. Following every reenactment, the participants and the observers should be invited, maybe even required, to attend a discussion about the reenactment and its larger meaning in American life. Thanks, John. Your thoughts on reenacting provide a nice setup for today's guest. We're going to take a short break from our typical format of interviewing interesting individuals engaged in historical thinking and instead move towards politics. So let's turn to our newest segment, The Way of Improvement Leads to the President's House. It is a race for president unlike anything we have seen in America thus far. The year is 1800. An incumbent president of the United States, John Adams, is facing a stiff challenge from his old friend and rival, Thomas Jefferson. It is a battle between two former members of George Washington's cabinet. It is a battle between two drafters of the Declaration of Independence. It is Massachusetts versus Virginia, Federalist versus Democratic Republican, President versus Vice President. It is also a rematch of the 1796 presidential election, a race in which Adams managed to squeak out a three-vote electoral college victory. Today on the Way of Improvement Leads Home podcast, we have scored a major coup by landing one of the candidates running for president. You may know him as a delegate to the Second Continental Congress, the primary author of the Declaration of Independence, the second governor of Virginia, member of Congress under the Articles of Confederation, the United States Minister to France, the first United States Secretary of State, and the current Vice President of the United States. Ladies and gentlemen, joining us today is none other than Thomas Jefferson. He is coming to us by way of time travel from Monticello, Virginia. Welcome to the show, Mr. Jefferson. Thank you, sir. It is my pleasure to be here. 
Now, you ran for president, Mr. Jefferson, in 1796 against your old friend John Adams and lost. Why are you running again? Your nomenclature surprises me, sir, and not a bit confuses me. I do not refer to running for office. Uh, Gentlemen of my experience stand for public office. (laughs) I... Nor neither neither I nor Mr. Adams left a homes during the process in '96, and neither one of us have left a homes during this process either. At least not expressly for the purpose of seeking votes. Uh, any gentleman who were to directly ask for votes would be looked upon askance in Virginia, and I dare say in most other places of the nation. So I am not putting myself forward, but rather. I am not refusing to allow my name to be put forward by others in the country. Why are you not refusing to have your name put forward, then? Let me rephrase that. Well, this goes back to why I entered the political sphere in the first place as a young man. This was back now, uh, going back, oh, 22 years, when I began as a representative of Albemarle County in the House of Burgesses in Williamsburg. It was my duty to accept a certain level of public responsibility because I was born to wealth and privilege because of my family name. Uh, To whom much is given, much is expected. Well, it was expected of me as it was expected of my father. Uh, That pattern does not end merely with acceptance of local, county, or colonial, as it were, service. It continues with a man throughout his life, at least a portion of his life. I think every man is expected to serve his country in some degree or another based upon his gifts. Well, I have been requested by my country to be considered for the executive office. It is not, I believe, my right to refuse that. So is there any ambition in your pursuit of this, or is it just service to your country? I, when I was younger, had a spice of ambition, I suppose, but now I've seen too much of the political sphere to have any real desire to govern men. I have learned over the years that the second office of government, that is the vice presidency, is honorable and easy. But upon observation, I can see that the first office, the presidency, is but a splendid misery. So if I were ambitious, (laughs) I think I would actually avoid this because of (laughs) my ambition. Okay, fair enough. Let's talk a little bit about... Uh, this election. Now, you and your friends in the Democratic-Republican faction have consistently said that John Adams and his Federalist cohort uh, and the members of his cohort want to return the country to monarchy. Can you elaborate on that for us? Well, I, I do want to separate Mr. Adams, whom I respect a great deal and I continue to hold in great esteem, from those whom you refer to as uh, Federalist cohorts. Mr. Adams has caused me concern in some statements, uh, in some of his publications, such as his thoughts on government and his discourses on Davila, wherein he has communicated to the United States and the world through publication and statement an intimation, a leaning toward monarchical forms I do not think Mr. Adams, though, prefers the substance of monarchy, though he does have, I think, too much deference to the forms. That being said, those men he is inheriting, should he, or he is continuing with, rather, should he continue as president, who have been his, 
as you have said, cabinet, they are servile to an individual who is dedicated to reverting us to monarchy. Mr. Adams inherited General Washington's cabinet, who were all following the orders of Alexander Hamilton, a man who holds no public office of any answerability to the votes of the American people, and a man who has shown over and over again that he wishes uh, to bring upon us not just the uh, forms of monarchy, but the substance of it himself. Well, Mr. Adams is not against monarchy enough to resist such encroachments upon our liberty. I, I, I hope I am not disparaging Mr. Adams' honor by condemning those men who surround him. Well, you bring up um, Alexander Hamilton and the idea that he is not beholden to American votes, yet rumors are circulating that the French are secretly supporting your campaign. Are these rumors true? What is your connection with the French and their revolution? Oh, here we go again with French accusations. I, yes, I spent five years in France uh, serving my country, representing uh, the United States, uh, obviously previous to and then uh, somewhat after the ratification of the Constitution. But having spent my time there, and certainly gained a love of much of the culture of France, it does not make me less American any more than anyone else serving their country overseas makes them less American. Yet, over the past four years, we have seen Americans, and this, this is, to a certain degree, uh, due to errors of Mr. Adams' part, uh, but definitely the, those of the monarchists, that they have... Uh, vilified. They have demonized the French. They've also done so with the Irish as well. But l let us look at both groups, especially the French. The, the French people are lovers of liberty, perhaps too ardent, uh, but yet they are lov lovers of liberty, yet they speak a language strange to us. They are of a religion that is unusual in the United States, and to some Americans, uh, they are quite terrified this people who have a religion and a language and a culture that is alien to us, and thus they have become the targets of national laws, unconstitutional national laws, that have taken criticism where it ought rightly to be in the actions of our government and placed it on these people who want only to join us, to join in some of our own liberty, which they themselves love. I will in no way denigrate my own connection with the French people, but, but no, I am not a lover of that which is French at the expense of that which is American. I consider them our sister country in spite of the fact that it was going to, it's going to take them a lot longer to achieve anything close to an equal degree of liberty that we have. Speaking of liberty, Mr. Jeff, or religion rather, Mr. Jefferson, there's been a lot of discussion about religion in this election. The Adams campaign is painting you as an infidel who will undermine America's identity as a Christian nation or a Christian country. How do you answer these charges? It's a densely packed question. Uh, hmm. There's quite a lot in there. So you, you may wish uh, to pursue a career as an attorney uh, with questions <laughs> like that. Uh, I've known a few in my life. Uh, and I am guilty as charged. Uh, regarding the question, or the rather questions... First of all, yes, I'm being accused of all kinds of things, including atheism, which I am not an atheist, but I defend the rights of atheists. I know atheists who are moral, uh, and I refuse to discourse on my own personal religious faith in public when asked. This causes many to believe that, therefore, I have no religion, which is absurd, but I also believe a man's religion is between himself and his God and no other. Certainly not. Certainly not that of the state and certainly not that of any Americans other than himself, including those who are voting. Uh, this has caused many to believe that because I am not 
claiming a specific religion. I have none. That is absurd. However, this idea that America has an identity as a Christian nation is, to me, equally uh, absurd and dangerous. We we have protected ourselves, uh, a natural right to have such opinions, religious and otherwise, as we see fit with our First Amendment. I, this is a close subject for me, because beginning after I returned from Philadelphia in 1776, uh, going through my work on the laws of Virginia uh, through 1779, and then finally coming to fruition in 86, I worked on disestablishing uh, a formal religion in Virginia, which we finally did with the Bill for Religious Freedom. And I was gone when my friend James Madison pressed that bill through uh, in the, the House of Representatives in Virginia, and I learned that there had it had already been to a certain degree. There had been a certain amount of religious freedom enacted in Virginia. But my bill took things further. And in the preamble of my bill, it declared that coercion, so, so a government forcing a religion or supporting a religion, is a departure from the plan of the holy author of our religion. An amendment was proposed by inserting the words Jesus Christ so that it should read a departure from the plan of Jesus Christ, the holy author of our religion. The insertion was rejected by a great majority in proof that they mean to comprehend within the mantle of its protection, in Virginia in this case, the Jew and the Gentile, the Christian, the Mohammedan, the Hindu, and infidel of every denomination. Well, that was 86. The very next year was our Constitutional Convention, and shortly thereafter, Mr. Madison was pressed by the people of Virginia to make certain that a Bill of Rights was attached to our constitution, and as things turned out, the first of which turned out to be a protection of religion and of opinion, which I believe to be defined in the same way. So if those who are trying to enforce a specific religious code or, or, or category of religions or choice of religions on the American people, nay, if there are those who wish to support even the support of their own religion, forcing you to pay taxes to support a religion of your own choice, if those people believe that I am their enemy, well, then they have a right to be scared. I am. But, but no, I am not trying to force the, 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 a complete lack or abandonment of religion in America, as we have seen attempted in, in France. I think that would be destructive. A very thorough answer to a very loaded question. Thank you for that. Let me ask you one more question before we, I know, I know you probably have a lot of different interviews to do as you're running here for president, but uh, you, you have, is it fair to say you chose the New York political operative Aaron Burr? And is it fair to call him your running mate? Discuss your relationship with Burr, who is the vice president on this, uh, on this ticket. Running mate, what a strange terminology exactly, to have. Right. You've gone now from running. Uh, and no, no sensible man would run for the presidency. He would only <laughs> run away from it. Uh, running mate is... It is assumed that if the electoral votes occur in a, a, along the means that we can perhaps direct that Mr. Burr would become my vice president... He is very effective and has been very effective in New York State, particularly New York City, uh, in bringing, uh, not long ago, in bringing the legislature there in their, their recent votes to a majority of the Democratic Republicans, thus all but ensuring that New York is going to vote Democratic Republican, vote for me and then for, uh, assumedly for Mr. Burr, because he is, of course, one of the candidates being put forward. I think without Mr. Burr, we would not have been able to, and his 
tactics there, which I've, I've never even heard of anyone orchestrating an election like he has done. Uh, without him, we would not have had a chance at winning New York. At least it would have been a very slim chance to the, point where, to the frustration of Alexander Hamilton, who fought directly against him. I think almost solely because he has opposed Alexander Hamilton, uh, he has gained a certain amount of admiration in my eyes. Uh, Mr. Burr, though, has shown himself to be very useful to the party and loyal to the party, and therefore to the, to the service of the nation who has suffered under the Federalists and the Monarchists. Uh, thus, I think he has earned himself a place in, in a position uh, which is, as I said before, honorable and easy. Uh, he has also shown a knowledge of parliamentary procedure, and that is the primary job of the vice president. So I see why he would not be considered qualified for it. Well, I wish we could spend a lot more time talking about this election with you, Mr. Jefferson, but I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, is it fair to say best of luck to you on election day? <laughs> um, well, I suppose if you were wishing me good fortune, sir, <laughs> personally, you would wish me to not be elected president. But if you are wishing good fortune to those who are advocating for me in the public sphere, I suppose that would mean that I were to become president of the United States. Well, whatever the case, uh, we appreciate you joining us here uh, on our podcast. Thank you, sir. It was my pleasure and honor. Well, we're back uh, with Steve Edenbow, who we just heard. I guess is the fair is it fair to say that you're a Jefferson impersonator, Steve, or how do you describe yourself? Well, um, I, I generally don't argue with anybody, dispute with anybody that is, you know if they want to use a specific term. I, a pr- impersonator is a term that people sort of can wrap their heads around, so I don't argue with it. But at the same time, I. I it's not really accurate because you can't impersonate somebody unless you know what they acted like. Sure. And we don't really know what Thomas Jefferson acted like. Uh, instead, we, we we have to interpret based on hints, uh, reports, that sort of thing. So you can impersonate FDR. You know, you can you can impersonate uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, you can impersonate Ronald Reagan. You can impersonate people living, uh, but but impersonating someone who we, we only have these these written accounts. So I often use the term actor historian, uh, sort of a hyphenated actor historian, because that easily gets across the idea. But people sometimes use reenactor. Again, that that's not really accurate. But I don't I won't take somebody up on it unless they're asking me, because a reenactor again you you to reenact something you have to know exactly what happened and then you're. You're, you're portraying it again, whereas the debates I have as Jefferson with Alexander Hamilton, let's say, aren't debates that really happened. You know, it's not a reenactment of a debate. It's an interpretation of taking their beliefs and quotes and things, putting them together. So actor historian is, is one. I've often used first-person interpreter, but that seems to just confuse people. Okay. Yeah. I, I just I just wanted to make sure that I had the right language so I wasn't offending you by calling you something that you, you but but um imper- you're definitely not going to offend okay. me. <laughs> okay. Uh, tell us how you got into this work, uh in terms of uh you know, impersonating, if you will, uh Thomas Jefferson. Now we're going back to nineteen ninety nine and I was doing some completely unrelated acting work and some folks who had founded a not-for-profit organization based in Philadelphia, but with national reach, called American Historical Theater, saw me doing my work and saw that I bore a certain physical resemblance to Jefferson. As they got to know me, they saw that I that reading and writing were my primary hobbies. It's an English major, Dickinson College, so there's a Revolutionary War tie-in there too with Dickinson. But 
they saw the the combination of the acting, the reading, the writing, the physical resemblance, and they they needed a Jefferson. That in Philadelphia, this kind of thing, first person costumed interpretation is part of the tourism industry, and then American historical theater has always brought this sort of thing around the country. So they needed someone because of shifts in in how things are going there. So they approached me and they said, "Hey, you look like Thomas Jefferson." I said, "I do." They said, "You do." And they said, "Would you like to do this?" And they gave me my first books. They gave me my first costume. And my first appearance, my first uh, performance was in Independence National Historical Park here in Philly, where I live now. And uh, I fell in love with the work and this this combination of the scholarship, the reading, the writing, the the acting, the travel. And I, I began reading constantly because I was not an, not not a history major. I was an English major, so I had a lot of catching up to do. And uh, the rest is history. I've, I've, it's all I do now. Tell, tell us a little bit more. What kind of jobs then do you get? I mean, you obviously do this full time. I'm assuming there's an educational mission to what you do. Tell us a little bit about how you kind of, you know, hang your shingle out on the porch or whatever to get to get work. Sure. Well, ever, the, the advertising, the marketing is, I, I suppose that's part and parcel with what I do. But as far as the nature of what I what I set out to do, it is it, education is definitely part of it. There's another sort of subcategory of this kind of thing, people in costume saying, hello, I'm such and such historical figure. And, and in that other subcategory, they don't really read much about it. They, they, they're there for photo ops. They're there for maybe at a party to make light conversation and to be kind of fun. I had a few of those appearances over the years, but they're a little frustrating because I don't get to really use my tools and my experience. So what I try to put myself forward is being as someone who is bringing these years of experience and information of self-education in this, of contemplation of it, to the stage or whatever the stage may be at the time, but also mixing in, if I can, some entertainment, because it's supposed to be theater. If it's not going to be entertaining, then you really shouldn't bother with the costume. You should just have the gumption to go out and get the PhD so you can be a real live professor. And not that real live professors aren't necessarily entertaining, but they certainly don't have to be. It's not, you know, they're not required to be. But if you're going to be an actor, well, it has, it's supposed to be theater. It's, and that's part of what this is. So there's neither one's better or worse. They're different sides, I think, of the, the same coin to a certain degree. We try to, so, be, we try to be as entertaining as possible, Steve. Well, but you don't it, have yeah. to be. But certainly, you know, it, I've had – when I was in college, I had professors who were entertaining, those who weren't. Teachers in high school, same, same split. But if you're going to put yourself forward in the costume and say it's theater, well, then that's part of what theater's about. Uh, so I try to put myself forward as this combination of – education and theater uh, of inspiration, uh, depending on some of the audiences are schools and colleges. Some are law firms are continuing legal education seminars, tourism events, tourist groups, that sort of thing. It's a pretty wide, wide range. And some are corporate clients where I do motivational speeches, leadership presentations, that sort of thing. I do have to also bring up, you know, John was my undergraduate advisor and still plays a pretty important role in my academic career. So I, I will advocate and say he was a very entertaining professor. But I also wanted to ask you, you, you brought up catching up on Jefferson studies, part of your preparation for this role. And I was just wondering, you know, what, what are your study habits and what kind of scholarship on Jefferson are you reading? And if you're willing to answer uh, what your favorite Jefferson book is. Okay. Well, I've had to be very ad hoc about my learning uh, over the years and my study over the years. I've spoken to folks who know a great deal about American history, and they've made me suggestions of reading lists and approaches that I they, they thought I should take. 
and I've certainly listened and benefited the best I can from their advice. But when it comes down to it, when you're doing this sort of thing, what you research, what you read has to be based on what you're being asked to do. For years, I was lacking in certain areas of Jefferson knowledge because it never came up. And therefore, I didn't spend a lot of time into it. And then I had requests to do presentations, let's say on his wine and his, his love of wine. And that, that, that's a whole subcategory. You know, his gardens are a subcategory, that there are experts just in his gardens, experts just in his wine. That I didn't have a lot of call to re- research. Well, then last year I had a series of presentations that I was asked to give on his wine. So then I spent time reading and researching and pre- preparing that. Now I'm doing more with legal audiences. So I'm doing more with his law career. And right in, and specifically right now, uh, I'm now, for, for those legal audiences, prepare, we're preparing a new debate. It's going to be Thomas Jefferson and John Marshall in debate. So whereas before, I've re- never really been called to speak much about, let's say, M- McCullough v. Maryland or Chisholm v. Georgia. Nobody really asks much about the 11th Amendment uh, ever in, in average audiences. Marbury v. Madison comes up a little bit, but the, you know, not not in a great deal of uh, detail, and certainly in a very general sense. Well, now we're going to do a three-and-a-half-hour presentation covering these Supreme Court cases. So now I'm focusing on that. And it's believe it or not, Chisholm v. Georgia is not inherently uh, entertaining. Neither is Marbury v. Madison, to, to, most, to most people. So we've got to bend over backwards trying to find ways not only to understand it, to be able to teach it, present it in a dialogue fashion, debate fashion, but to try to find ways to make it entertaining. So the research is reading is, is constant. I also have to simultaneously try to keep up on all the new books that are coming out. So I'm not caught off guard. So I know what, what people are thinking. So a lot of these constantly new books come out about Jefferson. Now, as far as favorite book on Jefferson goes, I'm going to have to disappoint because there's nothing out there that's really like the McCullough Adams or the Chernow Hamilton, where it's this idea where it's a basic biography insofar as it's this happened and this happened and this happened and but but it's written for a very modern sense a very 21st century sort of mindset where they're writing it to be entertaining uh, but i haven't seen a, a single volume jefferson come out yet that's been on that been really i think successful on that other than things that are very brief so my favorite right now is one that's a little outdated but it's in pursuit of reason by noble e cunningham jr it's what I consider to be fairly brief, it's under 400 pages, completely authoritative, sober, well-balanced. A lot of biographers on Jefferson, get they, they, they overdo the childhood, and then they, they just don't know what to do when, it, when they hit the bulk of all the information on the presidency. But it's completely lacking with the Sally Hemings controversy, because it was written well before that, and so you're missing that. So I, I, you know, that's the one, though, that I, I think is really the best I always recommend as a, as a great starter, at least to his public life. Yeah, I think actually, I think Annette Gordon Reed is now working on a one volume, uh, and we'll see if that holds. You know, we'll see how that plays out. I love this stuff on Marbury versus Madison. If you figure out some way to make Marbury and Mad- versus Madison interesting, I-, I may be calling you back. You know, because well, I'm, well, so, we'll I'm know. so sure we've got these. We've got these shows. Uh, our first debates for these continuing legal education seminars in New Jersey are going to be the last week of this year, and we'll <laughs> well we'll let we'll know. There'll be a hundred lawyers or so in front okay. of us, and if they don't think we're retaining, they will let us know. Give me a glimpse, Steve, into the sort of, you know, the the sort of work that you do. Can you just briefly tell us a story, maybe of one of your most meaningful or perhaps even a comical experience as a Jefferson reenactor or, excuse me, impersonator? 
or however you want to exactly know, or or at, yeah sure. interpreter well, god it's been so many years i think one of the most important things that i do every year is i perform at the national archives in washington dc on the 4th of july and this year i guess was my 16th year there and we do a public reading this is again with american historical theater and we do a public reading of the Declaration of Independence in front of the steps there. And there's Ben Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, Abigail Adams, George Washington. Uh, we've got a, a soldier, uh, African-American soldier, Private Ned Hector, reads the names. And there are thousands, you know, three, 4,000 people there. And, of course, it's a charge reading that in front of all those people at that place. But then we go inside in the rotunda of the Charters of Freedom. So we've got the, declara- the, you know, the real declaration there that was apparently stolen once and got the constitution the bill of rights there and marbury v madison has actually been put on display there with those documents on occasion and we're there in the rotunda and people are asking us questions and we're in character and right in front of us are the the real the actual documents uh, to me that just brings it all home for me every year because that's what it's all about that here in the united you, you look at those documents and they're frail they're just you can barely see the declaration anymore they're they're just gossamer thin and people, you hear people talking about paper barriers, and all you do is make laws against things, and that's not going to protect you from anything. But in the United States, that's what we are. We're we're a piece of paper. You know, we're not we're not a language or a religion or a geography. Though things like that, those things help us find an identity. Really, we're not, and we're not a city. You can burn the D, capital, Washington D.C. has happened in the War of 1812, but you you don't win the war. You know, we we are a piece of paper, and you can rip up the piece of paper, and we'll just copy it someplace else we're the first ones to do that and that doesn't make us weak i think that makes us a lot stronger and looking at that gossamer frail piece of paper paradoxically and speaking and being able to talk about it and answer questions about it brings it home to me every year that it's that knowledge that education of what it is that that discourse about it and the fact that it's just a piece of paper that that's what i think defines us as a nation more than anything so that that really i don't know that's not so much a story and there's really no humor in that but it's certainly one of the most important things to me every every single year i guess 16 years running well i have to say someone who's who spends time in archives and really comes into contact with the materiality of the record i mean i think that's pretty impressive i'm kind of already in awe of that kind of experience just having you describe it i do want to transition here though into something maybe a little lighthearted. Tell me, has your business improved since Hamilton the Musical came out? Oh, <laughs> you know, we've never seen anything like the effect it's had on this market. We've just never even seen anything like it. I mean, it's it certainly helped our the, the fellow that we I work with. His name's Eben Coons. Eben uh, portrays Alexander Hamilton, and it's helped him a lot. And it's affected me because everybody wants to see Thomas Jefferson arguing with Alexander Hamilton. So... It, I, you know, the, the calls for our debates have increased, and we're writing new material. For instance, we're writing a new piece. We, we do some scripted, and then we do some improv in the Q&A, and we do the scripts to move things along. It, it's, there's a lot more call for that. One of the great things about this is that because of that musical, I'm getting middle school students come coming to me, and they're giddy just with excitement, wanting to know about Aaron Burr and the, the Federalist Papers. And I want to cry. I'm so happy. I just want to. I just want. I listen. 
Lin-Manuel Miranda deserves every dollar he's made from this. Ironically, he deserves every $2 bill he's made and every 10, you know, and every honorary doctoral degree and every award he's gotten. Because I've had 13-year-olds coming up to me excited to talk about Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Papers. That's 17 years. I've never even heard of that happening. And these, you know, not even, I mean, I've, over the years I've had kids who are really, you know, advanced, excited about it. But this is just average kids. You know, my 11-year-old niece was playing for me songs from the musical this weekend. And I'm oh, it's so it's changed market-wise. It's changed interest. It's changed the conversation. Uh, nothing else, nothing McCullough HBO special or anything like that has ever hit our market. Has hit our business like this. If you're still doing Jefferson, Steve, I would have had to call you on that answer because your passions were coming out too strongly. <laughs> um, <laughs> But speaking of speaking of middle schoolers, I mean, our time is just about up, but I would be remiss if I did not uh, mention that before you were in the Jefferson business, you were actually our producer, Drew's babysitter. So perhaps you could give us some historical insight on Drew as a young kid for all our listeners. And be gentle. <laughs> be gentle. Be gentle. I wouldn't think of it as babysitting, but I suppose it was. Uh, well, Drew... I, he doesn't need anybody to be gentle. I mean, listen, you, they, they were, but you and your sister were just really, they, they were great kids and they were, uh, they, you know, they were their mother's kids. I mean, they were really intelligent and Drew was always, he's actually beyond his years. I was, I thought of him as being inquisitive and mature beyond his years. I was struck by that at the time. Uh, and I remember I was there in the summer to that after my, senior year for a little while there helping out during the day um i they barely even needed me to be there you know great uh, well our, our i'm gonna tell our studio producer here michaela if there's some way that we could immediately like send that uh through the internet to drew's mother and, <laughs> and sister to hear you speaking of it in that way <laughs> hey steve this has this has been great it's been a lot of fun learning what you do it was great having you in that first segment uh, in character if you will tell us our, our audience tell us how we can learn more about what you do about your work do you have a website you know uh give us a pitch Great. Well, thank you for asking uh, about that. I've got a website, though it's woefully outdated. I'm struggling with that. But it's uh, the obligatory www.yourthomasjefferson.com. So no, no no apostrophes or anything, just possessive. Yourthomasjefferson.com, all one word. Uh, I've got Facebook I update in character that's a, as Thomas Jefferson. And that's you can find that by searching on Facebook for Your Thomas Jefferson, all one word. And you'll see a picture of me in costume. Got a Twitter account. Your Thomas Jefferson takes up too much space. So that's, uh, as the Twitter account is abbreviated, one of the ways that he sometimes signed his name, which is T-H-O-S. He would abbreviate his first name, T-H-O-S. Then there's an underscore, then Jefferson. You'll see a picture of me there. I've got a Tumblr, and that's Your Thomas Jefferson. Got an Instagram. I only do that once or twice a week. Still working on that. Your Thomas Jefferson uh, as well. Uh, those things. So all those things I do uh, in character. With picture modern day things i'm doing videos but also sort of a quote a day calendar where the usually the day of the month i match it up to something from that day of the month but from whatever year from his life either a quote or an event from his life and then some also updates on things that i'm doing in my own career as well that's excellent yeah if you're out there listening by, by all means, check Steve out online uh, on his website and uh, get to know what he's doing. And if is it fair to, to fair to say, Steve, if they're in the business for a Jefferson, they're looking for a Jefferson uh, um, uh, portrayer or impersonator, that they should give you a call or 
Oh, absolutely. If they reach out to uh, Mr. Jefferson by any of those means, Mr. Jefferson's uh, personal secretary, Steve Edenbow, will get back to them <laughs> and talk about how we make it work all over the country. I've been to England doing this, too, to the American School in London. But, you know, wherever uh, Mr. Jefferson is called, that's that's certainly – I'm happy to go if it's possible. Great. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks again for being on the podcast with us. Yes, thank, thank you very much, pleasure, Steve. Guys. Wow, that was a great interview, wasn't it, with Steve? I'm glad you had that personal connection and could get him on the show, Drew. I'll tell you what, you know, I haven't spoken to him in a really long time, and something about just hearing him talk, even when he was impersonating Thomas Jefferson, really brought me back to my childhood in kind of nostalgic ways. That southern accent like really threw me off when he yeah, when he first started kicking in. I was like, oh, that's right, he's doing a Virginian here, you know, Thomas Jefferson. Absolutely. What struck me the most about his statement, you know, this episode is on historical reenacting, but what struck me was he made a clear distinction, right, between, um, you know, maybe you can help me remember that, Drew, this distinction between reenacting and sort of impersonating, right? Right. Well, I mean, he's doing these performances in which he is embodying Jefferson in a historical situation that is in fact fictitious, right? The, right. the Thomas Jefferson debating, you know, even in the discussion, he talked about how you don't actually run for president, you stand for president. So yeah, there are all these events that for us seem the normal behavior of political candidates, but instead they're fictionalized, which contrasts very interestingly to what you brought up in your story in which you discussed the obsession with getting Pickett's charge and making sure your angles are correct and that you right. know every button is properly worn and antiqued the way uh, buttons would be. Well, you were you've done historical reenacting. I mean, haven't you? Am I right when I say suggest that, like I did in the essay, the audio essay? Am I right when I suggest that it gets a little obsessive? Oh, you are absolutely correct, and I can actually relate to a, a particular anecdote from my own experience. In my group, we did the 42nd Royal Highland Regiment, which was uh, the what is today the Black Watch. And uh, I, I did British reenacting. And we discovered that about halfway through the American Revolution, all the Scottish regiments, which were originally outfitted in kilts, their kilts had started to disintegrate and they couldn't be replaced in North America. So the Scottish regiments transitioned to wearing breeches like the rest of the British soldiers. And... Our group nearly splintered into two reenactment groups over this question of whether we should wear breeches for uh, reenactments of battles from the second half of the American Revolution. And then once we decided that we were going to do it, we had to pinpoint the exact date in which we were to transition. And at a certain point, I think we have then lost the lost the actual purpose of what we're doing, which is helping, at least in my mind, helping students and young and or students of all ages be immersed and experienced through other senses the history of this country. Yeah. Do you think I'm right, though, when I suggest that's that's fair and good, right? We want to give people a sense of what life was like in another time. But Am I right when I talk about sort of reenactors sort of failing to have that dialogue between the past and the present or change over time and context and so forth? I mean, to me, I love it when my public history students get jobs where they sort of dress up and they portray a particular era. But, you know, at the same time, as long as 
there seems to be there always needs to be some kind of interpretation involved other than just, you know, the interpretation being the dress, the right number of buttons, but rather a sort of, you know, what does this mean? What's happening here? Oh, I think you're absolutely right. I think reenacting at its best is antiquarianism at its best. And it is it was extremely important for me and my career and igniting my excitement for early America. My favorite event every year was a reenactment of of the Battle of Bushy Run, which is one of the turning points of what is now known as Pontiac's Rebellion. I, I would not be doing what I am doing if I had not regularly gone and reenacted this Battle of Bushy Run. But at the same time, nothing of what I'm doing is the same as what I was doing then, which is correct. It has no conversation with the present. And in fact, it is it is the goal of the reenactor to remove the conversation with the present as much as possible to fully immerse through first person, like you said with Robert Carter, the third first person interpretation so that you lose your sense of being in the 21st century and instead become fully immersed in the 18th century, which is good. It's just different. It's like, it's like full blown time travel. Exactly. Right? You know, there's no, no, that's fascinating. And I hope, I hope you've learned something, gotten some, some insights to, uh, on this podcast related to you meeting our audience, you know, on, on reenacting. Hopefully we've got you to think a little bit about what goes on and, and some of the things, some of the, the positives and negatives about this, this entire exercise. Um, I think it's, would it be fair to say, Drew, that this kind of reenacting, but also impersonating, is is a good thing, but it also has its limits. I think maybe we can conclude on that. Absolutely, it's it's a a piece of a larger conversation. Well, we made it through episode ten, actually, of season two. Our first episode in season two is in the books. I think we have another success. We're super excited to have Mikhail on board. I think this is the best we've ever sounded. I, I think so, too, and I think we're only going to get better. So thanks for listening. Connect with us. Connect with us online, on, on the web, on Twitter, on the Way of Improvement Leads Home blog. Come back next week, and in the meantime, may your way of improvement always lead home. This has been a production of The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections at the intersection of American history, religion, politics, and academic life. Visit us at thewayofimprovement.com. If you want to support our efforts, please rate and review us on iTunes so others may more easily find this podcast. The podcast was recorded at the studios of WVMM 90.7 The Pulse. Many thanks to Ed Ark for his continued support. Original music is by Overholt. Many thanks to our guests, Thomas Jefferson and Steve Edenbow. Our studio producer is Michaela Mummert. I've been your producer, Drew Durley Hermeling, and your host is John Fia. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 